Whenever he visited New York, P.G. Woodhouse stayed in Greenwich Village. With Jerome Kern, he wrote the frilly 1918 Broadway musical, Oh Lady Lady, that featured the song Greenwich Village, with lyrics like, Quite ordinary people who come and live down here get changed to perfect nuts within a year. They learn to eat spaghetti, that's hard enough, you know. They leave off socks and wear Greek smocks and study Guido Bruno. That needs a bit of explicating today. Italian cuisine was still exotic in America in 1918, but not in Greenwich Village, unofficially known as the Latin Quarter, where French bistros and Italian trattorias were essential aspects of its special charm. As for Guido Bruno, he was actually a Czech emigre named Court Josef Kish, who commuted down from the Bronx every day to play the art impresario for gullible tourists. His detractors called him the Barnum of Bohemia. By 1918, Greenwich Village had been a magnet for misfits and refuge for outsiders for a very long time. Blacks, Italians, and Irish, artists from across the genres, anarchists and communists, gays and lesbians, intellectuals, eccentrics, and visionaries were all drawn there. An astonishing who's who of world culture made the village at least a temporary home in the 20th century. Some came as refugees, but most were self-exiles, who came because this tiny speck of real estate, a neighborhood they could stroll through in 20 minutes, was the one place in America where they were not only allowed, but encouraged to live and express themselves freely. It was famously said that Greenwich Village wasn't a place at all, but a state of mind. Before the village was even a village, it was a zone for the cast out. In the 1640s, when the future metropolis was still a Dutch trading post at the foot of Manhattan, the settlers granted some of their African slaves their half-freedom to grow food on small parcels strung across the area. The Dutch were not acting out of altruism. The Africans' farms were meant as an early warning system, should the native Lenape, whom the bloody-minded settlers had enraged, decide to attack. By the 1800s, the neighborhood had grown into the pre-Harlem epicenter of black New York life, called Little Africa by some. It was home to America's first professional black theater and newspapers, as well as then-notorious black and tan clubs, where whites and blacks mixed for drinking, dancing, and romantic assignations, despite the plethora of city ordinances forbidding it. In that century, the neighborhood also saw large influxes of Italian and Irish immigrants, who were as much outsiders in America as blacks were. When Manhattan's canyons of tall buildings began to march up the island through the 19th century, the village stood apart 
an almost rural anomaly of leafy, meandering streets lined with small homes and storefronts. Literally off the grid, it appealed to the nonconformist and the renegade. The day in 1804 that the political mischief Maker Aaron Burr killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel across the Hudson, he returned to his home in the village. He fled the next morning to avoid a murder rap. Four years later, the rabble-rouser Thomas Paine came to the village to die a penniless persona non grata. He'd been a hero of both the American and French revolutions, but then was anathematized for the blasphemy of writing that organized religions were, quote, human inventions set up to terrify and enslave mankind. New York newspapers barely noted his passing, but a nursery rhyme did. Poor Tom Paine, there he lies, nobody laughs and nobody cries. Where he is gone, or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. In 1845, Edgar Allan Poe was living on the village's Amity Street when the publication of The Raven brought him his one brief flicker of success. Ten years later, another literary outsider, Walt Whitman, self-published Leaves of Grass, to almost universal denunciation as lurid obscenity. At a village ratskeller called Faffs, he sought out the only society who would have him, America's first self-identified and self-celebrated Bohemians. The idea of Bohemianism came to New York from Paris and London in the 1850s to be sniffed at by the New York Times but embraced by the Faf's crowd, a gaggle of frayed-collared journalists and poets, struggling artists, and actresses with somewhat salty reputations. Among them was an Irish writer, Fitzjames O'Brien, who squandered a modest fortune on drink and dissipation and liked to settle literary arguments with his fists, ending his evenings quite often in the nearby Jefferson Market Jail. His friends nicknamed him Fitzgammon O'Bouncer. Jane McElhenney from Charleston, South Carolina, came to New York to pursue an acting career. Her stage name, Ada Clare, was surely a play on the Southern Belle's common exclamation, Ada Clare. She had a son out of wedlock and rather than hide the ruination of her reputation, as was common at the time, she brazenly handed out calling cards with the shocking announcement, Miss Ada Clare and Son. When she died, horribly, of rabies in 1874, Whitman would eulogize her easy, sunny, free, loose, but not ungood life. And there were the young men who, a century before Greenwich Village became synonymous with gay liberation, discreetly returned Walt's glances. In 1861, 
The onset of the Civil War broke up the FAFS crowd. But after the war, through the greedy boom years of the Gilded Age, so-called by Mark Twain, on and off again village reticent, while the stiff-collared Victorian bourgeoisie obsessed over minutiae of etiquette and sublimated their desires, Greenwich Village's reputation spread as a tiny sanctuary for those who rebelled against all that. Artists, intellectuals, political radicals, sexual explorers. They, in turn, attracted clouds of hangers-on and tourists who, if not arty or intellectual themselves, came to join in or at least ogle the freewheeling lifestyle and sometimes be taken advantage of by Fohemian hucksters like Guido Bruno. End of part one.